up in masters almost sure we have a plan there's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view find the more you think you know unless you really do It's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine doing the dance from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood. And it is hard to look at America's report card right now and find even a single thing to spin into a positive. People are working harder for less, many of which seem to be on the brink of a nervous breakdown. Death clouds settle over New York while doom spirals set in across many major cities. Confidence in leadership is at an all-time low as leadership competence drops even lower. And a writer's strike is keeping the few sane people left from enjoying their last bits of halfway digestible entertainment. We got 99 problems with processed foods, polluted air, EMF interference, homelessness, fentanyl, a general lack of affordability, deceptive media, criminal politicians, corporate shenanigans, deep state agendas, tuck-it-back bathing suits, censorship and surveillance, manipulated mass shootings, mainstreamed mind control, and a pill-popping populace that for the most part doesn't even understand the half of it. We are failing across the board, yet still sending overstuffed bags of cash we don't have halfway around the world while the military-industrial complex is licking their lips for World War III. And in troubled times like these, we go to the best at breaking down exactly who and what are causing these problems. People like the great Charlie Robinson. He's the well-known and highly respected author of The Octopus of Global Control and Hippocrazy, Surviving in a World of Cultural Double Standards, the co-author of The Control Demolition of the American Empire, along with Jeff Berwick, and host of the action-packed and informative Macroaggressions podcast. But that's not all, folks. He's also added hosting a live radio show on TNT Radio every Saturday morning to his already very full plate. The man doesn't stop, so let's get it started. The American Empire eulogizer, societal collapse chronicler, and octopus of global control tamer. Charlie, my good man, welcome back for lucky number three. Thanks for having me. America, baby. That's <laughs> only halfway through the year. <laughs> yes. We still have another half to go. Oh, I know. I can barely believe it. Well, it's good to be back. <laughs> you know, I wish we were talking about all of the victories that we're celebrating but it seems like the wheels have fallen off this this american experiment and it's a damn shame i'm an american you're an american we want what's best for this country obviously but boy i'll tell you the people that are running the show i can't say the same for them i have my suspicions about where this clown car is headed and it's not good uh. <laughs> yeah i mean i'm right there with you i wish we could be more positive but it's important to be real and on one hand, it does seem like there's a lot happening. But on the other hand, it seems like some of these major issues like World Economic Forum agendas, corporate ESG scores, wokeness and the decline of the West are the same things we've been talking about for a couple of years now. And I know these issues have very long arcs. They take time to manifest. But I sometimes feel like we're just preaching to the choir. People who see the problems know about them and people who don't 
aren't tuning in. So it's kind of like I feel stuck, you know? Well, yeah, I do know. Because the people that you really want to reach seem to be the ones that are content to be unreachable. They're comfortable with their current scenario. They don't seem to be paying attention to anything. And I'm not really sure why. Maybe that's because they don't want to know what's actually happening because then it becomes real to them. I mean, I don't know how you can live in the city like San Francisco and not understand what is happening because you can watch a beautiful city, a great city. You can watch it fall apart in real time. It's like a, if somebody set up one of those time-lapse cameras and, you know, up in a sort of a high area where they could get a good overview of San Francisco, you would just watch it deteriorate over the last couple of years. And it wasn't hit by like a atomic bomb or an asteroid or anything like that. It was all due to nonsensical government policies, which the bright side is that it's fixable. But you've got to have the appetite to fix it. And when I look around with the general public, you know, I don't know that they're ready. I don't know that they're at that point where they're willing to get honest about the situation that we're facing because it's not good. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it doesn't seem like it's getting much better. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. And it's true that Sometimes the problems are so in your face that, yeah, every conventional person can see them, but it's the engineering that they miss. It's the how did it get this way? Obviously, we just went through that with COVID. People are like, well, this is a terrible thing that's going on. It's like, well, look at the playbook that is being used, the policies being enacted. It's all about limiting control. Obviously, we've done that show. But just as an example, you can all see the same problem, but it's just figuring out where it came from and that it's not necessarily organic and random, all that kind of stuff. And the same could be said for homelessness as a crisis or fentanyl. It's just people think these things happen at random and it's just something we got to deal with. But it's like, no, this is a calculated decision by a group of people behind the curtain to inject this into your society. And obviously, San Francisco, you brought up and that's a great example because you did an episode that got into a lot of stats about San Francisco. And I believe it was America's self-inflicted doom loop. And the term doom loop is somewhat self-explanatory, but talk to us about the doom loop process and what is happening to San Francisco and really quite a few other major American cities right now. Well, I have to preface it by saying that I'm not a Republican. And I say that because I'm about to pick on the Democrats. And I think that whenever somebody does that, there's a reflexive feeling, oh, well, you must be from the other side and you're so quick. No, I've got my problems with the Republicans as well. But let's be very honest about what's happening here. These major cities that are falling into disrepair are all under Democratic control. It's not an accident and it's not a coincidence. This is part of a plan. And the hollowing out of the cities can take a variety of different forms, but one of them we've watched with San Francisco over the course of several years. It's really it's been building for a while. I'd say COVID kicked it off, of course, but the idea that you're going to disregard reality for a while, you're going to allow people to be installed in places that have a disproportionate amount of power district attorneys that refuse to prosecute crimes, mayors that look the other way or prioritize crazy things. You get into a situation where 
the city you think is so stable, but if you give it enough time and enough bad ideas, you can really start a process of unraveling it. And that's what winds up happening in what's known as a doom loop. Now, I had never really known that there was a name for it. You kind of understand, like you said, the name itself is sort of self-explanatory. But what winds up happening is this. You have a decline in work in the center business district, and it results in less foot traffic and consumption. And so what happens is that that leads to things such as, you know, the people are, are not showing up in San Francisco anymore. We'll use them as an example because of COVID, and so everybody stays home. Well, then the BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit System that brings people into the city, it started to experience a decline of, I think, 70%, 72% for downtown. What wound up happening is that they start to make some projections moving forward saying, hey, listen, we're going to be running at a negative here pretty soon. In fact, by 2026, the BART in San Francisco expects to be in a $300 million deficit. So, of course, what do politicians in San Francisco do? They do what all politicians do when they don't have any great ideas. They raise taxes. So they said, well, we'll, we'll just cover that shortfall by raising taxes. And you say, okay, well, that's fine and all, but it still doesn't change the fact that remote work basically gutted most major cities, but no place really was hit harder than San Francisco. And so you have office vacancy at an all-time high, the occupancy rate is down 43%. You've got San Francisco experiencing 18 million square feet of open, free, vacant office space in the city, which is the equivalent to their big tower, their big Salesforce tower. It's the equivalent of 13 of those, oh. just filled <laughs> with empty office space. That's what's happening in San Francisco. And so as an example, then you know, a lot of people don't show up to the city. So the little donut shop and the coffee shops and the dry cleaners and all the stores that depended on that traffic, they start to go out of business. The companies that own the office buildings, they start to default because they don't have anybody in there anymore. And as a result, then it starts this catastrophe, this feedback loop that starts to pull other industries down. This last week, we saw that the largest and the fourth largest Hotels in San Francisco have agreed that they're not going to pay their bills anymore. They're basically going to hand them back to the lenders. We had the Westfield Mall agree that they're not going to keep making payments on their mall in downtown San Francisco because it's a non-starter now that Nordstrom's has left. So this creates a loop in which it's impossible to get people out of. You start to see the stores closing, Walgreens close 22 stores, CVS close multiple stores. Whole Foods just up and moved out. Target said, well, listen, you know, all these stores have left and we're still here and we're open for business. But the problem is, Greg, everyone is stealing everything out of our stores. Hmm. So we can't really stay open at night because we'll just get looted. So the Targets in San Francisco close at six o'clock. When you go into a Target, it looks like a Japanese vending machine. Everything is behind plexiglass, you know. <laughs> I mean, so they've had to reconfigure their society because of what? Because of COVID? Well, everyone experienced COVID. It was more than that. It was the decriminalization of San Francisco. And that was done by design. That was done by a guy named Chessa Bowden, who was financed by George Soros. And his mission was to destroy the city from the inside. 
And so they decriminalized any theft that was under $950 so that you could quite literally walk into a store. And as long as the items that you picked up didn't add up to $951, you could walk out of the store. Nobody would do anything. If they called the police, the police wouldn't show up. If the police were standing outside of the store waiting for you, they couldn't arrest you. So it incentivized crazy behavior, open air drug use, you know, and look, I have sort of mixed feelings on the drug issue there because I have a tremendous amount of empathy for those that have fallen into that trap of drug addiction. And I understand that there's a lot of factors that play into that, but it is undeniable that they have reconfigured the way we view drug use. It is rampant. It's available everywhere. There's burglaries, car burglaries. So it's like Every sort of aspect of society is fraying around the edges. And if you point this out in San Francisco, they will call you a variety of things. A conspiracy theorist, a anti-LGBT rights person, a liar. You know, they'll make up as many excuses as they can to distract from the fact that this is self-induced. And once you start this doom loop, it's really hard to pull out of it. And we've started to see people leave the city. We've started to see people leave the state. You know, I left the state years ago. You left the state. I mean, we know the reasons why this happened. So it's been a really frustrating experience to just kind of sit on the sidelines and watch it, watch what happens to the city. But again, like if you're going to be honest about what's happening, the city of San Francisco really has nobody to blame but themselves because this is all self-induced and it's a damn shame. Yeah, that's a great summary. And some other statistics you mentioned in that episode is that 55% of food service workers have left the city because they don't feel safe or they can't afford it. 34% of general service workers have left. 26% of office administrators. So it's just like that rung of society that works at the donut shop you mentioned or something. They're just not there because they can't afford it. And the city is now forecasting a $728 million deficit over the next two years, and it's expected to rise to $1.2 billion by 2028. It's pretty wild stuff, but while this does seem self-inflicted based mainly on the policies, it also seems to conflict with that goal of pushing us all into 15-minute smart cities a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, you'd think they'd do a better job of making the city a place where you'd want to go if they were going to trap you in this mousetrap. But they've done the exact opposite. The last place in the world you'd want to be is stuck in a city like this, especially if you've got no way to escape. You know, we're talking about 15 minute cities in the future. They want to have it. So, well, listen, you, you don't really need to go anywhere else, right? You've got everything that you need right around here. Well, if you do need to go somewhere else, are they going to allow you out? You know, are they going to place restrictions on you? Well, if they do place restrictions on you, how would you like to be stuck in a place like San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York City or Chicago on a weekend where you could get murdered just by going anywhere? So the idea that they're going to create these 15-minute cities, these smart cities, they call them, and that they want you to voluntarily go into them and set up shop and view that as the place where you're going to live out the rest of your life. I'll tell you, they're doing a pretty bad job with the sales pitch because 
everything that I've seen is, you know, you won't own a car in the 15 minute city, but you won't want to own a car because every time you park it somewhere, it gets the windows broken out of it. And some homeless guy is rummaging through your glove compartment. So, you know, the idea that they're going to incentivize people to make this move, maybe work a little bit more on the, on the sales pitch here, because (laughs) We know what San Francisco is. We know what the demographic is. It's a very young, educated, for the most part, tech-driven society that tends to have disposable income, obviously, if you're going to live in San Francisco. So you you would think that like the cornerstone of the San Francisco experience would be the Whole Foods market, right? It's jokingly known as Whole Paycheck. And everybody knows that when you go in there, it's going to be kind of expensive, but it's going to be better quality food. Well, they couldn't even keep the Whole Foods in San Francisco open. Over the course of 13 months, the police reported that there were a grand total of 568 emergency calls to the San Francisco Whole Foods in just 13 months. Workers were threatened with weapons. There were people overdosing in the bathrooms. There were people going to the bathroom in aisle five. You know, I mean, it was like the wheels came off of this experiment. And so I think that people are starting to kind of figure out that if we're going to be stuck in a small, you know, in a confined area, a downtown area, this is a process that has been building for 100 years. We know how to live in cities. I don't understand why they've decided that they're going to reimagine a city in which Law enforcement is optional that, you know, if you were to stand up for yourself and fight back against some of this stuff, you would be the one arrested. They're now passing laws to try and make it so that, you know, you're not allowed to confront people that are shoplifting in the stores. I mean, I can't imagine how they would if they were trying to destroy your incentive for wanting to move to a city. I don't know how they would do it any differently than what they're doing right now. But this is supposed to be the sales pitch for the city of the future. And I'll tell you what, man, that the more I see of these jam-packed lawless cities, the more I want to get myself as far away from them as possible. And I know that I'm not alone. I think a lot of people are kind of looking at this and they're going, you know, what exactly is happening in our cities? And is this a sign of things to come for America in general? Yeah. Well, it is a sign of things to come. I'm pretty convinced, but it's also a very mixed message, as you say, with this conflicting agenda of getting everyone packed in. It's like COVID was the first thing where everybody quickly wanted to spread out. It's like, hey, you told us to spread out. Now we're spreading out probably more than you wanted. But that's why people wanted to get a little bit of land and and actually truly social distance with their living space. And when you do that, obviously, you get away from the crackdown of the crazy lockdown policies, because now you actually can control your space a little bit more. But Obviously, San Francisco is ground zero for wokeness. And I wanted to transition over to one of your other recent episodes titled Woke Capitalism. And obviously, I like a play on words, but even though wokeness, it really does get more than enough airtime in the podcasting world. It is, though, interesting that for companies like Budweiser and Target, it did become a liability to go too hard in this direction. And you make some good points in that episode about how. Traditionally, corporations have always been obligated to act in the best interest of the shareholders. So given these examples now, it's almost like companies are obligated to back off of that stuff. But yet the people pushing 
these things like the ESG scores, they've kind of come out of the woodwork and said, hey, you know, we are willing to bankroll companies to make up for the retail losses. So the game has kind of changed. What we thought was like fundamentals 101 of corporations and their obligations has now been made a little less straightforward with this other stuff going on, wouldn't you say? Well, Larry Fink from BlackRock came out a couple of years ago and sent a letter to companies that they control. When I say control, I mean the companies that they have a large stake in and also sort of a message to companies that they might consider having a stake in in the future. And he said that they want to fundamentally change the way business is done. They want to change the priority system. And in order for BlackRock, and you know, who is a massive hedge fund, a company that takes a lot of money invested in in a variety of different options to show a return to their investors, they've decided, well, you know, that's just kind of not going to do it anymore. You know, yeah, fiduciary duty to shareholders and all that. We're going to throw that out the window. Really, what we want to do is we want to make sure that everybody is treated fairly. And you go, what? That? I'm sorry, but if I've got my money with a company that's supposed to turn a profit and pay me more money the following year, if I've got my money tied up in these funds or I've got a 401k that's being managed by Vanguard or Fidelity or State Street or BlackRock, or I'm sorry, but I would prefer that you try to maximize profits for me, not participate in this woke game. But they've decided that there's a different way that they want to do business, and that's this environmental, social, and governance, ESG. And if you want to think of it like this, it's a social credit score for corporations as opposed to people. Now, in China, they sort of started it with the people first, and they put the social credit score on the people and sort of worked from the bottom up. With America, it appears that they're going after top down. They're going to start with the corporations, make the corporations get on board with the social credit component, make them start to operate against their own self-interest, but be rewarded in some sort of unusual way by access to cash and capital that nobody else has access to. And they're going to transform society into a very different future. Now, this is fiduciary negligence, in my opinion. This is something that you should fire everybody at the top for this. But instead of that, they've been doubling down. The companies that are out there doing this are now starting to receive access to this money. And there's a pool of money that sits off to the side And what the government has said is, listen, we've got all this money over here, and if you want access to it, you can have it, but the criteria is that you're going to have to have a high enough ESG score in order to be allowed to tap into this reserve of money. Now, the irony is that you're going to need it. If you go full woke (laughs) as a corporation, you're really going to need it. If you're the Anheuser-Busch's or targets of the world, you're starting to find out what this costs you. It costs you quite a bit in market capitalization of your business when you go so hard in the paint that you're pushing Dylan Mulvaney and and you want tuck pants for five-year-olds at Target. And then all of a sudden, the general public says, we're not into this. We don't want anything to do with this now or ever. In fact, not only that, We're going to never buy your brand again. We're going to start protests. We're going to vote with our dollars. We're going to incentivize companies to hear what we, the customers, are saying. You remember the customers, right, Greg? They used to be the ones in charge, but that's not the case anymore. 
So a company like Anheuser-Busch or Target now has access to the money that is off to the side that the government is holding on to, and they can use that to do a variety of things. Now, the overall plan is this. We're going to create a consortium of companies that are all on board with the ESG woke social credit system for corporations. You're going to pay a huge price in the short term for being part of that. But what we will do, we the deep state group that's sort of controlling this whole thing, what we will do is we will make sure that we don't allow any of your competitors that didn't get on board with this to ever have access to capital again. We'll just shut them off. So you're going to pay a price in the short term, but don't worry, we're going to have a monopoly and you're going to be on the winning side when this whole thing blows over. No, that's the plan. We'll see how it really plays out, but that's what they would like to do. But I'll tell you what, I think as consumers and as people that are watching this unfold, we should say, okay, if that's the plan, we'll make you spend that money. You know, we'll make you have to come in and bail out Target and Anheuser-Busch. And that's just the beginning. We'll continue to do it. And if you say you've got enough money to weather the storm, well, let's see you. Let's see you do it. Because I don't think the population is really going to be on board with this. But if you've got enough big players like BlackRock and the likes to push this and to say we intend to change behaviors, that their, their point is to not necessarily maximize shareholder value, but to change behaviors? Well, I would suggest that Larry Fink should be fired for that. But unfortunately, we're just starting to see the incentives be reconfigured in a way that's a little bit inconsistent with the way that we've always sort of dealt with business. Right, right. And I've also heard that these very same people pushing the stuff and the hedge funds they're involved with they are actually shorting the most woke companies out there and then profiting on the downtrend they created. And that doesn't surprise me because it's not that hard of a game. And they're very good at pulling the levers and then also making investments that are not risky at all because they're basically guaranteed. So when I hear that they're using, they're mobilizing basically all their media resources and their social media bot farms to actually kick off a boycott of Budweiser because they just shorted the stock. That is like kind of a, it's not complicated, but it is kind of genius, as simple as it is. But it makes sense to me. You just decide which boycotts start because you get the trend going because you control everything. I don't know. I thought that was an interesting premise. I also kind of heard that that's what's going on with uh, the writer's strike because, yes, wokeness is getting costly. And I've talked a lot with Chris Knowles about how Hollywood has been getting crushed with box office bomb after bomb. Well, now there's this idea that the writer's strike is really about cutting ties with those woke writers and bringing in scabs to rework a lot of these projects in the pipeline. I don't know. What do you think about these two things? It just reminds me of trading places. You know, Mortimer, <laughs> we're doomed. You know, you just feel like they're shorting the stock of uh, Anheuser-Busch. Well, I'll tell you what, when I say that they have money sitting off to the side, what I'm talking about is situations like this. UN-affiliated Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, right? So there's this group that's connected to the United Nations 
called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, and they're really trying to push this zero carbon emissions. Now, how much money do they have over there to play around with with these corporations and to make sure that they're on board with the net zero initiative? Well, they have $150 trillion. That's what they have announced that they have set aside for this. So when I say they've got all the money in the world, that's what I'm talking about. So the idea that they're going to try and push for this, making money on the way up, up and down, oh, of course they would be. I have no doubt that they're shorting all of these stocks. I mean, and they make the corporations do the performative dance and short yeah. them on the way out there. Uh, I mean, it's kind of fitting too. Yeah, you would imagine that that is happening. But the idea that we're sort of being forced to listen to all this woke stuff and watch these companies self-emulate out there is kind of funny to me because this is not how any of the people running these corporations were ever taught to do business. And yet here they are getting on board, operating against their own self-interest for a variety of reasons. I'll tell you what, I speculated about this a while ago. You know, when you've got all the money in the world to bribe these guys to, you know, remake their corporations in this woke world, you're probably going to get most of them on board. But, you know, for those that you didn't get on board, you had a lot of banks on this list, a lot of banks that were participating in this. And of course, bankers understand money and they understand that this is a catastrophe to start to work against your own self-interest like this. Boy, I just wonder how many of these bankers were brought on board due to the relationships that they had with a guy like Jeffrey Epstein, you know, the yes. blackmail that they had on these guys in advance. Now, you could use blackmail on Larry Fink for a variety of things, or Jess Staley from Barclays, who we've known, or Jamie Dimon, who all, all have recently paid out large sums of money for dealing with Epstein. And so I wonder, I just kind of wonder, it's a speculative thing right now. I don't have any sort of hard evidence, except that these guys are all friends with one another, and, and we know what they were doing down there, and they are all on board with a process that should rightly be laughed out of the room. I mean, if you brought up the idea of ESG in a boardroom and said, you know, I know we've been doing this the one way for 150 years where we're trying to look out for the shareholders, you know, the shareholders like us. But instead, I think what we need to do is we need to make sure that we have the correct number of one-legged Eskimo transgendered midgets on our board. That's what's really going to fuel this company into the new century. We really need to be more diverse. You know, have we thought about adding more handicapped parking spaces to the parking lot? Or have we thought, you know, I mean, the things that they're getting bogged down on are so irrelevant and nonsensical. And yet everybody all at once has made the decision to pivot towards this, which is obviously coordinated. And it makes you think that, boy, you know, the people that are running the show for all these major corporations that are sitting on interlocking boards of directors, controlling each other's, you know, watching what's going on at each other's corporations, they all got on board with this at the same time. But, you know, I guess $150 trillion has a way of sort of smoothing out the rough edges of these ideas. <laughs> Absolutely. That was something I was going to bring up is you said in that episode that the Venn diagram of Epstein and ESG is quite interesting. And you mentioned a bunch of the people that you just listed there. And even something I didn't know was that Warren Buffett, I mean, it's clear that 
he's not who he's presented as. It's clear that he's not some innocent billionaire of the people still living in his childhood home, just penny pinching the whole time and just a jolly little Santa Claus of finance or something like that. I didn't realize the insane amount of investment that he has made into the Gates Foundation. It really wouldn't be what it is if it weren't for Warren Buffett's money. And you talked about this speech that was given at a Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting. Talk to us a little bit about that and how Warren Buffett is pretty much right up there in there with uh, Bill Gates, more so than people realize. Their relationship started because they're both big fans of playing bridge. Sure. And that's the official story. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they might be fans of other things, too. I don't know. But they're fans of playing bridge. They got together. They're both two rich guys just trying to help the world. And Warren Buffett has had this reputation for a long time of being the Oracle of Omaha, the guy who's very, his investment strategy is very boring. He invests in corporations that make products very well and pay dividends and Coca-Cola and he owns Dairy Queen and he's a big shareholder of McDonald's and he's just a regular old guy who likes to have his McDonald's quarter pounder and then maybe go down the street to Dairy Queen and have an ice cream. He's just like you and me, hmm. except that he's given about half of his fortune to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, 31 billion to be precise. And what that money is used for is whatever the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation chooses to use this endowment for, which has ballooned to over $70 billion at this point. So they're using it for a variety of things. Unfortunately for the planet, one of the things that they're deeply involved in is eugenics. And that is the depopulation, the idea that science could be used to thin the herd and kind of prune the rose bushes and trim the bad stock and all of these things that people tell themselves will improve the planet, but are really diabolical and bloodthirsty at their core. Bill Gates has been all about that. It's his mission. His father was was on the board of Planned Parenthood, which is the American Eugenic Society. I mean, this has been an ideology shared by the Gates family for a long, long time. So when Warren Buffett donates his money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, he knows what they're all about. He knows what they're doing and who they're financing and what they're actually doing. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's not good. It's a lot like the way the Rockefeller Foundation was started after the Rockefellers got themselves into trouble, you know, 100 plus years ago and had a really bad reputation. They created this Rockefeller Foundation as a PR vehicle to disperse some money and make it look like they're saving the world. And of course, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation kind of followed in that. And so, you know, they have this meeting, a shareholder meeting in Omaha where Berkshire Hathaway is based and it's a big, big room. And one of the shareholders comes into the event and says, listen, you know, I have, I'm a shareholder. I'd like to talk. His name's Peter Flaherty. And he starts to talk about the relationship that Bill Gates has had with Warren Buffett. And the whole point of this Peter Flaherty speech is that he wanted to propose that they split the roles of Berkshire Hathaway CEO and chairman so that it wasn't one in the same, because as it stands right now, they're both Warren Buffett, the CEO and the chairman. And this speaker wanted to split that up and say, I want there to be two different people in this role. And the reason is we need to diversify away from just you, Warren Buffett, being in charge of this because we have real questions about your 
intentions because you've donated so much money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And then this guy goes on to lay out what Bill and Melinda Gates have been doing over the last couple of years. And during his speech, you can watch it and you can see that the crowd starts to get a little restless when he starts talking about what Bill's been up to. And then they cut his microphone and he petitions, hey, you know, listen, I've got, you know, I'm supposed to be allowed to talk. And Warren Buffett comes on and says, yeah, okay, put his microphone back on, but you only have three minutes, right? So he continues his speech where he's explaining about Bill's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, and we know what that was all about. And that was just a bridge too far for Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett has him arrested in the middle of a shareholder meeting, has handcuffs put on this guy and has him taken out of the building and arrested and booked for trespassing. So that's kind of where we are. That's what we're working with here. We've got multi-billionaires that are running agendas that are very dark and devious. And for the general public, you know, people think, well, you know, Bill Gates, yeah, he's kind of a dorky guy, but, you know, he's just known as a rich guy and he's super interested in vaccines and he wants to help the world. And, you know, and if that's the way you view Bill Gates, the reason why you do is because of the amount of money that he's donated to the media over mm -hmm. the years, which works out to hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that he's donated to the media to buy a specific view of Bill Gates. You know, this lovable guy, yeah, he's kind of he wears the sweater and, you know, he's got a geeky voice and he looks like a guy you probably went to school with. But they don't want you talking about the fact that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been thrown out of India for giving 496,000 children polio with their oral polio vaccine. And they don't want you to know that his financing of the World Health Organization has gone towards adding sterilants to the tetanus vaccines in Kenya and the Philippines and all around the world. They don't want you to know about that part of Bill Gates, because when you know about that, you start to understand who this guy really is. And I think that what Peter Flaherty was saying at this speech was, we now know who Bill Gates really is. And you, Warren Buffett, are donating a sizable amount of money to a guy who's one of Jeffrey Epstein's buddies, who's interested in depopulation and eugenics, who's creating very unsafe medical procedures for people to take. And you and we in this entire room, we need to get honest about who is in charge of Berkshire Hathaway moving forward. Now, you know, I think that's a reasonable thing to bring up as a shareholder. And I think the reaction towards the speaker kind of said it all because they couldn't get him out of there fast enough. <laughs> and it wasn't because he was slandering anybody. Everything that this guy was saying was 100% true. They just didn't want you to know about it. Because yeah. if you were to know about it, it's one of those things. Once you know who Bill Gates really is, you can never unknow it. You're always going to remember that. And so they're fighting this battle, this reputation management game, where Bill Gates is trying to convince people that he's a good guy faster than the world can wake up to the fact that he's actually a eugenicist with some really bad intentions. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, image control, perception control is very expensive, but one person willing to speak the truth, there might be consequences for them, but it's pretty cheap and it can penetrate through all that money and energy and time spent trying to craft that perfect image. But 
unfortunately, so many people just take that surface level image and they don't have any discernment. They don't think about anything beyond that surface level. And that's why this stuff is allowed to continue. And when it comes to these ESG scores and agendas, I understand the climate side, right? It's kind of like that whole play with any kind of regulation. The big guys make the calculation that we can afford to accommodate this new regulation, but a lot of our competition will not be able to. And you could say that's an element of the climate stuff too. We also know it's shaping up to be COVID lockdown 2.0. It's the justification for so many of the agendas against people. So I get that they're kind of willing to take the hit maybe financially on the stock price to get a lot of that stuff done. I don't really get the trans side, really, the push for trans stuff. I mean, and this is a a huge thorny thing, but you got a lot of people out there who are gay saying, look, trans has nothing to do with us. LGB without the T, as they're saying, gays against groomers. So, you know, I am just a boring vanilla cis white male, but I'm listening to people in the gay community. They're like, we don't want to be associated with that. So it's not my words, it's kind of theirs. And I understand that one of the plays could be just that it is a form, a roundabout form of sterilization. You cosmetically look different if you transition, but you are functionally sterilized as far as Bill Gates would be concerned. There's also obviously a big play for Big Pharma to give kids a bunch of pills, just like when we were kids, they would say, oh, you have, ADHD, you need these pills. So now it's, you're showing signs of gender dysphoria. Here are some puberty blockers. But there's also uh, another factor of state control over children. The state and big pharma and the school psychologist knows best. Don't trust mom and dad. They don't get you like we get you. I mean, that's a dark, sick thing that's going on, but it is in the mix. So I understand these multifaceted reasons why some of this would be happening in culture in general, but I don't really get how or why it comes through the corporations and why it's an aspect of these ESG scores, because it just seems like they're really going out on a limb when people don't give a shit about these corporate ideologies and their positions on certain things. It's like, I don't need to know Cheerio's take on race. I don't need to know Hershey's thoughts on Pride Month. Uh, Just sell these stupid, toxic shit you sell and just like, let's get back to business. But maybe talk to us about why the trans thing is in the mix of the ESG agenda portfolio overall. Yeah, well, I want to echo what you said. This is not the gay community doing this. The gay community has been very good about building themselves up over the last 50 plus years or so been taken seriously to do the work that's necessary to be treated fairly and with respect. And I would suggest that the gay community has done that really well. And I grew up in Palm Springs, California, which has a huge gay community there. And I remember it just always kind of being normalized. It's just a little bit more free, a little bit more out in the open, and everyone was cool with it. The trans aspect of it, is not the gay and lesbian community. I think that they are mortified by this. In fact, I think that they are going to be the ones that pull us out of this, frankly. I think it's going to be up to them to have have a chat with the T's, as Dave Chappelle says, and say, you know, listen, you guys better get your act together. We're going to throw you out of this car because you're causing a lot of big problems here. 
there's a couple reasons why this woke ideology is being infused into society. I mean, when you really want to, you know, then the trans component is part of this. When you really want to destroy America and Berwick and I wrote Controlled Demolition of the American Empire, and that came out in 2020. We were talking about how if you want to create a world government like these maniacs are talking about doing, they've been talking about it for 100 plus years. They really want to do that. If you want to do that, there's certain things you have to accomplish in advance. You can't have a superpower. The idea of America in its current incarnation being part of this one world government just isn't going to work. And they know that. So they need to destroy it and destroy and destabilize it from the inside so that it is less powerful. So the idea of coming in and sort of softening up the country from the inside is a real priority. We get into the work of Yuri Bezmenov talking about demoralization. He's doing these great interviews with G. Edward Griffin in the late 70s, you know, and he's saying, you know, the process of demoralization takes about 40 years, you know, and you're like immediately look at your calendar. You're like, okay, late 70s outfits, 40 years from now. Wait, that's now. Oh, <laughs> shit. You know, uh, maybe, maybe Yuri was right. You know, maybe we should listen to Yuri. We've got this idea to sort of undermine the fabric of society through demoralization. That takes a lot of different forms. Part of this is as you mentioned, look, if you are talking about a depopulation agenda, and we always are, world government and depopulation go hand in hand. If you want the world government, you got to depopulate first, right? Would the trans agenda accomplish that? Well, yeah, it would. I mean, it wouldn't be the fastest way to do it, but it certainly would be, you know, you are dealing with you know, you're giving kids Lupron, which is chemical castration for sex offenders. I mean, so there is that. You're at the very least, confusing them, getting them to a position in life where they don't want to have kids or maybe now they're physically unable to. So there's a long-term sort of slow-moving, soft-kill depopulation thread running through this for sure. But one of the things it also does is if you can get the kids young, you know, notice that the tranny story time where they insist on reading to five-year-olds, they're not reading at the old folks' home. They could very easily take those books down the street to the old folks home and read for those gentlemen from World War II or the Korean War and talk to them about stunning bravery or whatever. You don't see them doing that. And it's because they want the kids. And if you can get access to the kids and you can get them scrambled up from the inside, unsure of who they are, or what they are, or I'm, I'm this gender today and tomorrow, I'm cake gendered or whatever, you know, the, the, if you can get these kids kind of scrambled from the inside, and if you can sexualize them early on, which is a really disgusting concept, but it's something we have to look at. One of the things that happens is that if you can sexualize children early on, it breaks the bonds that they have with important people in their lives, like their family. If you can get them to break the bonds between the children and the family, then they'll reestablish those bonds with the state. That's just what yes. always happens. When you start to see these regimes, these cultural Marxist regimes of the, you know, the, whether it's African child soldiers that are forced to kill their parents or whether you're, you know, it's the Khmer Rouge of Cambodia with the struggle sessions and making their parents, you know, explain their transgressions in front of a crowd of people from their village. You know, whatever it is that you're doing, if you can break the children away from their family, 
you can end that connection and reconnect it with the state. And that's really devastating. And so you accomplish a couple of different goals. I mean, you, you're destroying family, you're building up the state, you're creating very loyal workers, very loyal members of the party. They don't have anything to go to, you know, they've been distanced from their families. We're your families now. You have teachers starting to talk about this stuff with kids saying, you know, listen, you know, if you want to transition or if you want to go by different pronouns, we'll keep that information hidden from your parents. I mean, in what universe is that normal? That should never happen. But you have states like Washington saying, listen, we won't tell your parents. We have states like Colorado, where I live. They're saying you can travel here. Minors can travel here for sex change surgeries, and we won't tell their parents either. And you go, wait a second, what is happening here? This is insane. This is not anchored in reality. This is not what you do when you're trying to build a healthy child. This is not what you do. You don't allow your kid to transition because they wanted to be Spider-Man when they were five years old. This is craziness, right? But it's craziness that's being normalized and incentivized and really protected, you know, that the idea that trans rights matter and protect trans children and all, all these people, you know, don't take away our rights. Like, I'm sorry, but what on earth are you people talking about? Hmm. You're the most protected class in America right now. <laughs> There's no if. Hey, listen, I should be asking for protection and rights. I'm a white male, a straight white male. I mean, I'm having my rights taken away from me. If we're getting honest about who's losing their rights, it's me in this scenario. But I'm not out there making an embarrassment of myself like the rest of these people. It's changing the psychology and the makeup of the country as a way of destabilizing it. It's very diabolical. It takes a long time to do this, as Yuri mentioned. But when you have a plan, and Tom DeLay, a former like House majority leader, I think a Republican majority leader, he was on an interview with C-SPAN in 2015 or 2016, and he was explaining to the host that he sat in on meetings in his time in government where they talked about the normalization of 12 perversions, including pedophilia and bestiality. Now, he's explaining this to some stunned C-SPAN host in like 2016 who's going, what are you talking about? You know, he says, well, I've sat in the meetings and they've talked about how they're going to normalize these 12 perversions. And the host is like, OK, if you say so, you know, and you watch that in 2016, you go, that guy sounds crazy. Well, watch it now and now ask yourself. What do you think he was sitting through? What kind of meetings was he sitting through in which this was being talked about? It was planned to be normalized. And then it's actually being put in place. So you have to start to ask some questions about like, who is really behind this and who is running it? Because it's, we saw what happened when the woke people themselves were in charge of managing things. We saw what happened when they built that Chaz or Chop <laughs> place in, in Seattle. It didn't go well, right? It broke down pretty early. So we know that these morons aren't in charge of this agenda. It's coming from somebody up at the top. And so when you start to dig into that, what you find is that there's a lot of money behind the trans agenda. You find families like the Pritzker family, who's Hyatt Hotel family, and there's about a dozen of them, and they've each got about $2 billion, and one of them is the big money behind this. And so you start to ask, like, okay, so what's the end game here? And the end game appears to be to just destabilize society so that America is softened up 
intellectually and emotionally and definitely physically were softened up uh, with the amount of prescription drugs that we're on and everybody's trans and everybody's having anxiety and everybody's on 18, you know, different SSRI drugs, you know, and so you, you look at society and you go, well, if the goal is to destabilize America and make it a mess, <laughs> they certainly are doing a good job of it because everywhere I look around, it seems like the wheels are falling off. But I think the only question is, you know, how much longer do we really have if we keep going at this rate? Or are we going to reach an inflection point where we've been in previous generations where this goes only so far and then it whipsaws back the other direction? Because, you know, when you set a society up and create so much chaos like this, you really do create an environment in which somebody can come to power and say, I'm going to right all of these wrongs. I'm going to fix all of this. You're just going to have to give me full control in order to do that. And we watched what happened in the lead up in Germany. We watched what happened. Putin talked about this. He said, oh, yeah, we had the same thing happen with the Bolshevik Revolution. I mean, in the lead up to this, we saw this degeneracy start to happen in Russia, and then we got what we got, and we saw it in Germany, the degeneracy in the lead up to World War II. And then that happened, you know, turned out the way it went. And so you look at America and you go, all right, so there's a lot of talk of civil war. There's a lot of talk of World War III. Are we not on the path towards making one of those a reality? Because it certainly does seem like we are, given the fact that History shows that if you screw up the culture for a while like that, it has a, a very negative effect. And in fact, you wind up setting the stage for leaders to come to power that make some promises that always tend to end with uh, bodies in big piles. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes I hear these conversations about the trans thing on podcasts in general, and I wonder, is this really as big an issue as people are making it out to be? But when you fold it in with all that other context, yeah, it, it kind of starts to feel like a big deal. And to me, it's like, look, I want everyone to feel comfortable in their own body and do whatever you need to do to get there. It's really no skin off my back. But if this was any other point in history, you would kind of just have to figure it out and learn how to deal because Big Pharma wouldn't be there to put you through all this stuff. and. A lot of people, from what I understand, I've heard prominent gay voices like Andrew Sullivan and others say that when they were kids, there were adults in their life that would call them like a girly boy, you know, or a pussy boy, these kind of things. And if there was a psychologist in their school who told them, hey, if you don't feel comfortable in your body, maybe we should stop puberty and do some genital surgery for you to make you feel better. He's like, I could have definitely fallen into that trap. And I even think about myself and it's like, if it was trendy and there was a doctor in my high school that was promoting vasectomies when I was 16 years old, I might've been on that. Right. I might've been like, well, do I ever want kids? I definitely don't now. I'd love to just not worry about it. Let's do it. Yep. It's possible. Kids are impressionable. It's not about what your gender identity or sexuality is because they're just plain out impressionable. Even a straight kid could fall into sterilization for certain reasons if you appeal to their ignorance. And I've been listening to more detransitioners. Like, I don't know if people realize there are activists that have gone through this and they say it has really fucked them up, that it's not as advertised. 
that when they started taking testosterone, it gave them terrible roid rage for big periods of their life. They thought about killing everyone and anyone. I mean, is that good to be having a bunch of kids experiencing that in a widespread sense? And a lot of them have said they regret the surgeries, that they did not turn out as promised. And I think that's the issue. The two issues to me are like the state as a parent and breaking that bond. Yes, I agree with you. That's kind of a a big deal. Just state worship. And then also just big pharma worship. Again, any other point in history, these weird feelings you might've had, you just deal with them and you maybe turn out to be gay and it's really not a big deal, but it's, you get people at the specific point and you do irreversible things to them. We don't even let kids get tattoos. If you had to get a tattoo at 18, let's say, do you think you'd be proud of your choice now at, at 38? Because I know I would have got some stupid shit tattooed on me, probably something from WCW wrestling or some punk band. I'd be embarrassed as hell about a life decision made at 18 in that kind of way. So we just, we know these are adults who know better and they're just pretending that you're a bigot if you question it. And it's a little weird. I still don't really know how huge a problem it is, but yeah, I, I don't love it. I'm, I'm with you on a lot of that stuff. And that's probably going to disappoint people to hear that. But it's not about coming down on someone's individual choices. It's about kids and big pharma being disingenuous. They don't really care about you at all. They want that money. And if you go through a lot of these processes, they've got you on the hook for life because you can never stop or you're in worse shape than you were, according to people who have done it. What do I know? My only concern is with children. Yeah. If you're an adult and this is your thing and you're into it, it's none of my business. As long as you're not hurting anybody, you're free to explore your sexuality. And if you want to transition and be somebody else, you know, and and you've done the research and you feel comfortable with it, you know, look, it's none of my business. And I think that this is the point that a lot of people on the hardcore left miss is that Nobody is saying don't be trans. They're just saying stop talking to the kids about it. Yeah, exactly. You know, kids are impressionable. Kids want to be, you know, pro baseball players or superheroes or whatever. And a lot of that stuff is just what you want when you're a kid. And then you get a little bit older and things change and your goals change and your life changes and you develop chemically, physically, you develop and you're able to process information differently. You're not allowed to rent a car unless you're 25 because your brain isn't done developing. What, we're just going to allow 11-year-olds to transition because they feel, you know, like they're born in the wrong body. Listen, maybe you just don't have a lot of friends, okay? Maybe it's something as simple as that. The idea of a permanent solution to a temporary feeling is crazy when you're this young and yet it's being normalized. And I think what a lot of people are starting to take issue with is that they feel like they're not even allowed to point out that this is crazy without people calling them bigots and homophobes and transphobes and all these things. It's like, this is such a disingenuous conversation to have with that group because it's not about transphobia. It's about children. And it's always been about children. And it's not about somebody being gay or whatever. It's just about Be gay wherever you want to, just not in kindergarten reading to a bunch of kids while wearing a costume. It's just ask yourself this question. 
Is this something a groomer would do? Is this something a <laughs> pedophile would do? And again, I think, like I mentioned before, I think the gay community is going to save the day on this because I think the gay community is going to have to pull the trans community aside saying, hey, listen, you're going to get us all branded as pedophiles, which we are not, but you're going to get us branded that way if you keep doing this stuff. Stay away from the kids. Be as trans as you want to, but stay away from these damn kids or you're going to get us all painted with this same insane brush. And so I'm hoping that like you mentioned, Gays Against Groomers and groups like that stand up and they say, hey, listen, there's a difference between us. And I think for the average American, you need to point out that difference because a lot of them are not big city folks that know the difference between all of this and they might lump everybody in in one group and that would be unfortunate. But this is something that needs to be addressed and, and I'm hoping that the gay community can come and step up and save the day on this because <laughs> We're going down a path that's going to be really tough to turn away from, and a lot of people are going to get hurt, I think. Right. And it's annoying that we have to spend airtime on all the caveats, I know. but we do, and there will still be complaints. But man, this has been a lot of fun. Great talking to you again. We covered a lot of the space that has been missing from the show lately based on you know what people tell me. And you're great at it. You know, you obviously do a lot of solo shows where you spit a lot of facts at people about these very things and you do great work. But remind people of the irons in the fire that you got and the projects they can check out, the social media stuff. I mean, you know how this goes. Well, thanks for having me back. I appreciate our, our time. And I I hope that people would be interested to check out my show, Macroaggressions. If you can add that to your podcast diet, it's out there in audio format, wherever podcasts are served as a video. You can probably catch it over at Rockfin. It's the best place. People that want to connect with me or find information about the books I've written, you can do that at the website, theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com. On Twitter, at Macroaggressions, where I argue with people that are probably bots. <laughs> and on Instagram, at Macroaggressions Podcast, we have that going now. So just writing books. Union of the Unwanted is my group show that I do with Sam Tripoli and Midnight Mike from OBDM and Ricky Verandas. We have such a good time doing that. I also do a show called Day Zero that will most definitely get me kicked off the internet at some point. And like you mentioned in the intro, I recently... Took a two-hour slot with TNT Radio every Saturday morning so people can catch that tntradio.live. It's a live internet radio station based in Australia, and I've had a lot of fun doing that. So doing what I can to spread the word and get the information out there. Like you said, you can make this information available to people, but you know, it's going to be up to them to internalize it, to take the information, see how it works with them and incorporate it into their lives. But I certainly do appreciate the opportunity to talk to people about this because you're not going to get it in the mainstream media. That's why you're here. You're not going to hear these sorts of things discussed at length. If you do, it's only going to be really in this podcast format. And so I appreciate you. I appreciate you for lighting the way on this path many years uh -huh. in advance of me. Because it's been the most rewarding thing that I've done to get involved and start doing this podcast, which I'm now on a little over year three, and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So thanks to you and the guys that have been doing this for a long, long time, you made this a, a viable option for me, and I will always be appreciative. Uh, too kind, but 
Man, you have an impressive body of work. I've enjoyed your books. I do love macroaggressions. And I love you, man. You're one of the good ones. Keep fighting the good fight and take care. Thanks, brother. Yes, people. Always a pleasure to talk to Charlie again. Good guy doing good things. I'm also a little jealous of his work ethic, but that's normal around here. And speaking of my work ethic, I do apologize for another long gap in shows. If you saw my tweet, then you probably get it. And by the way, if you ever think I've been absent for too long, just check Twitter or Telegram. I've probably given some sort of update. And for the ones who do see the update, help me out. If you see people speculating, wondering what's going on in all the various places that conversation can happen, let them know that it's been addressed. But as I said there, with the move and recording from hotels and some personal stuff, etc., etc., when I got through April and May, I just wanted a few days to myself before starting up again. And then my first guest of June was a complete no-show. It came time to record. I read their book. I had my outline and nothing. I'm a forgiving man, so we have since rescheduled for next month, but that held me back. And then my second guest on the books asked if we could wait until fall because he's got a bunch of big projects. And I said, sure, I get that, but now I'm two down and we really need to get going here. I had a few people respond to that tweet that they would love to come on THC, but it's not really about them. It's about my preparation. We can't just jump on a call and press record because you're willing. I need at least 24 hours, probably 48 hours to feel comfortable. And that's just how I am. Two hours is a long time, and I don't ever want to appear to be out of material to talk with someone about. So this is just what happens, really at the worst time for me because I was already working on a semi-light schedule. But I won't be light anymore. I'm already knocking them out. I've got several in the hands of our editor who's also going through a move. But we will get it done once again. And I'm going to be better about scheduling now that I'm here. I think July and onwards is when you're going to start to see that. But anyway, Charlie Robinson bringing the heat. With the gap we had and several paranormalish shows in a row, I thought it'd be great to talk about some of the news, as well as the multi-pronged attack on humanity. And before I forget, for Plus listeners, I do have a slight correction about the Mike Herrera story that we talked about. So when I listened to his speech, it was a cut-up highlight reel rather than the full presentation. And my buddy, who is a Marine, actually heard the full presentation and said there were actually some specific details that made the story stand out as authentic to him. But when I mentioned these vacuum-sealed bags used for people aspect, my buddy said, yeah, that was a creepy part, but Mike said... That detail came from Stephen Greer, not something that was disclosed at the scene. Basically, Mike said he assumed it was for sealing and shipping drugs, but Dr. Greer said that he heard from a separate whistleblower that vacuum sealing equipment on this particular mission was for trafficking people. So while the overall story seems to be authentic, Mike's team seems to have stumbled upon a hovering UFO and gotten jumped by an aggressive black ops team doing something out there, the only one who mentions that most unique and provocative detail and said they were for people is Greer. And he heard that from some anonymous source. So 
Maybe we have to dismiss that aspect of it. But the rest of the story is still pretty damn interesting, and nobody can say for sure what they were doing out there in the jungle. But yeah, wild stuff coming from David Grush. Not to just keep teasing the things we talked about in the second hour, but I want everyone to know that we did talk about it today, and we will do a deeper dive with someone in the ufology field, most likely. I'm really just going to wait and see if anything else comes of it for a week or two, but pretty wild claims. But as for the full show, Charlie did talk about a lot of important stuff going on right now. The ESG score thing is something worth reminding people about. The doom loops are happening. Even in the new Tim Dillon episode, he talked about a show he had in San Francisco and was very clear, hey, uh, it's not just a right-wing narrative. It's a hellscape. It's an open-air drug and prostitution market covered in trash. But yet the politicians just carry on as if it's business as usual. But yeah, we also did talk about the trans movement, which I already know our audience is split on. But all I can say is when something is pushed from the top down through all the major channels and corporations, even if it sounds like a positive, big-hearted thing, I've got to think there's an ulterior motive, and that's what the show is about, is looking at those kind of things. And I have to assume that At a minimum, it's inauthentic. You know, Apple can't just slap a rainbow on their Twitter profile and pretend they don't get lithium from child labor in the Congo. My priority is human rights, which includes everyone who considers themselves human. But if a company has abuse or toxicity in their supply chain or products, I don't give them any credit for their marketing or their diverse corporate board. So don't pick a fight with me over trans issues. We're really talking about corporate authenticity. And if you don't like something I might say regarding the trans issue, also let me remind you that I get my opinions from people with lived experience. Not all LGBTQ folks agree, surprise, surprise. It's not like I'm regurgitating points from Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro. And if individuals who went through it stress that they were never told about the debilitating health consequences of these surgeries and the years of pain and the multiple rounds of infections, well, again, this is a big pharma issue. It's about false promises from the machine, not really about any individual's journey to feel comfortable in their own skin. And I think I said both times before I talked in the actual episode that I think this issue gets too much attention. Maybe I'm naive, because I don't have kids in school, and I don't really know any people wrestling with this in real life, but I do think they're happy to let us get lost in the sauce talking this thing to death. So I try not to play that game, but if you can't concede that this stuff should all be left until 18 years old, and teachers and child psychologists don't have a right to do anything behind a parent's back, then I can't even engage in a good-faith conversation with you because that's fundamental stuff in my mind. Whew. (laughs) And as for the Plus show, we talked about things like our thoughts on David Grush's UFO disclosure claims, that Mike Herrera story I mentioned, the core deep dark secret at the bottom of the rabbit hole, Charlie's economic concerns and the de-dollarization of global trade, fentanyl, and China, 
the work of Celeste Solom, the barcode for life program, and genetically engineering humans and other organisms to survive in a colder world. And yes, this was another reason why Charlie was a good guest in a pinch, because I had all that Celeste Solom material from her ditching me back in December. It's so annoying to have a person make an interview appointment with you and not show up. And also not answer several emails asking if we need to reschedule or what's going on. But that is a separate issue from the research and material itself, which I found compelling. And Charlie is also aware of her work. So I got to dust off that old dead outline and cram in some of her most provocative work into this episode. And I'm happy we could. But all good stuff. Thanks to the Plus members who make my world go round and also get to enjoy the full two-hour show. It's always deeper and more interesting in the second hour. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com or use the link right there in your show notes. $8 a month, five two-hour episodes, and like the fire of a thousand suns, they will be coming in hot between now and the end of the month. So what better time to take advantage of the seven-day free trial? Treat yourself. Help me. It's a win-win. But before we go, we got to check the meetup calendar, a free and open system for making small group gatherings in your area based on the mutual love of THC. As someone who just relocated to a new area, it is tough to find new friends in your 30s, especially if you work from home. And even more so if you hope to share some unpopular opinions or curiosities with these folks. Let the meetup calendar help you. Coming right up, June 20th, we have a Monday Night Brewing event in Nashville, Tennessee. June 21st, Lancaster, New Hampshire. July 1st, Auckland, New Zealand. Maybe Gordon will show up to that. I'll let him know it's happening. And July 15th, a Brooklyn, New York meetup. But that's a pretty light month. July's only got two events. One of them's in... New Zealand and one's in New York. I hope more people will jump on, put themselves out there, use the calendar. My only motivation is to help you find other people through your love of this podcast, and podcast listening is often a solitary experience. And I also don't want to look like a complete fool when I have to read the upcoming events for this thing I built and nobody is using it. So make new friends on your terms with just a few clicks. It's worth it if you don't think you have enough friends and family immune to the fear-based tactics and agendas we talked about today. And with that, I'm going to go get working on the next one. Big thanks to Charlie. Check out Macroaggressions and the Octopus of Global Control. I've done my part. Your move, Doom Loop Directors, Woke Capitalism Controllers, and ESG Agenda Scorekeepers. Your fucking move. I won't take it, no I refuse If it's alright, I'll keep my refuge I've been scheming of bigger things And have to leave my old life behind Gotta transfer to the inner earth I built a box, built a hole Got a neat elevator going under And now you'll find me in the bunker
You'll find me in the bunker, bunker, bunker. 